there are many people I should acknowledge. I want to say uh, to Russell Clark and to the student researchers this year that I appreciate, uh, Russell, your leadership of our talented young people and all of you who've done research for the latest report card um, march in a great line of uh, researchers who've gone on to, to very good things, and we're grateful for the work that you do. I think it's an exciting experience for you as students to be able to work uh, on these topics, to work in a, in a part of the country you love, and to work with a mentor of the caliber of uh, Walt Hecox. Uh, Walt certainly represents uh, the best qualities of our faculty, and uh, I'm, I'm, I want to acknowledge, Walt, your, your uh, inspiration in the state of the Rockies. I came here, everybody thought I had an agenda, and I didn't. My agenda was to listen and to learn what uh, seemed to make sense for CC as we aspired to uh, uh, excel at what we do in terms of liberal arts education. And Walt reminded us in, during a year-long conversation that we had of the importance of, of uh, our sense of place. I think our students are attracted here because of the challenge of the block plan and the intellectual curiosity and adventure, adventuresomeness, if that's a word, that they bring, uh, but also by the sense of being in this very special place. It is both an advantage and it is a challenge at times. Ask our athletic director when he's trying to figure out who we compete with where we could get into a car rather than put our teams on airplanes. <laughs> it's a challenge. In any event, um, as you know now, the Colorado College State of the Rockies project is in its eighth year of focusing on our backyard. In 2007-2008, the project was expanded by adding uh, selective recognition of, key, of the key dimensions of what, make, what makes the Rockies dynamic and different from our country's other regions. Outstanding leaders of vision, drive, and determination who are shaping its present and future. In April 2007, we were pleased to pay tribute to Ted Turner, the first such individual we chose to recognize through our Champion of the Rockies Award for his leadership as a champion of, of, of Rockies region land management and restoration. In 2009, we recognized as our next champions of the Rockies, Ed and Betsy Marston, long active in editing and strengthening high country news, a, uh, a, a literal record of the region. This year, we are honored to make this award, to extend this award, to Terry Tempest Williams. Terry Tempest Williams is a Utah native descended from five or six generations of Mormon pioneers. She has written, I write through my biases of gender, geography, and culture. I am a woman whose ideas have been shaped by the Great Basin and Colorado Plateau. Williams is perhaps best known for her book, Refuge, an unnatural history of family and place, in which she chronicles the epic rise of the Great Salt Lake and the flooding of the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge in 1983, alongside her mother's diagnosis with ovarian cancer 
believed to be caused by radioactive fallout from the nuclear tests in the, in the Nevada desert in the 1950s and 1960s. Refuge is now regarded as a classic in American nature writing, a testimony to loss and to the Earth's healing grace. Williams' other books include Pieces of White Shell, A Journey to Navajo Land, Coyote's Canyon, An Unspoken Hunger, Desert Quartet, An Erotic Landscape, Red, Patience and Passion in the Desert, the Open Space of Democracy, and Finding Beauty in a Broken World. Perhaps particularly appropriate now is the theme of the Open Space of Democracy, in which she tries to define how we can break down the partisanship and polarization in our society in order to come together to solve the political and environmental problems that threaten our democracy and our land. In it, she says, I do not think we can look for leadership beyond ourselves. I do not think we can wait for someone or something to save us from our global predicaments and obligations. I need to look in the mirror and ask this of myself. If I am committed to seeing the direction of my country change, how must I change myself? Terry Tempest Williams has been called a citizen writer, a writer who speaks out eloquently on behalf of an ethical stance toward life. A naturalist and fierce advocate for freedom of speech, she has consistently shown us how environmental issues are social issues that ultimately become matters of justice. So here is my question, she asks, what might a different kind of power look like, feel like, and can power be redistributed equitably even beyond our own species? Williams, like her writing, cannot be categorized. She has testified before Congress on women's health issues, been a guest at the White House, camped in the remote areas of Utah and Alaska wildernesses, and worked as a barefoot artist in Rwanda. Among her many awards are the Robert Marshall Award from the Wilderness Society, their highest honor given to an American citizen, the Distinguished Achievement Award from the Western American Literature Association, and the Wallace Stegner Award given by the Center for the American West. She is a recipient of a Lannan Literary Fellowship and a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship in Creative Nonfiction. Terry Tempest Williams is currently the Annie Clark Tanner Scholar in Environmental Humanities at the University of Utah. Colorado College is pleased and honored to recognize Terry Tempest Williams for her leadership through literature as one of the region's sharpest critics and simultaneously enthusiastic champions. Her career has set a world-class example for young people about one person can do with literature, what one person can do with literature and ensuing activism to help make a difference. Terry Tempest Williams, I'd love you to come forward. I have a presentation that I'd like to make to you. We'll walk over next to my surprise presentation so I can, I, I, in fact, I'll tell you in advance, this is a beautiful, beautiful photograph. I'm gonna show you it in a moment. 
Um, the photograph, is, it's called Sunrise Canyon View. Uh, the, it's Canyon de Shea in Arizona, and it's presented to you as champion of the Rockies. So come on over with me, and we'll get a picture. I'll leave my tie here, Walt. Thank you so much. That is the most beautiful photograph, and you have to know how much that means to Brooke and me. We love Canyon de Chez, and we've been there many, many times, and that, that horizon of yellow is just stunning. So thank you. And thank you, President Celeste. Um, it is such a deep honor to be here as part of the State of the Rockies Conference. Um, your magnetism attracts all of us and brings us back again and again. And I just, I love Colorado College. I have to be one of your greatest boosters. I like to think I'm responsible for several of your students that have come to this college. And Jacqueline, it's such a, an honor and pleasure to be with you. And I'm so excited to read your book, Letters to Vietnam. So um, we honor you and both Brooke and I feel very lucky to be here at, at the end of, of your tenure. To all of the students and faculty at Colorado College who have made this possible, Thank you. I'm nervous. Hopefully I'll relax in, in just a moment. Um, I especially want to acknowledge uh, Walt Hecox. Thank you for your leadership. Um, and I think we all can honor <laughs> Your vision aligned with the President's has made a difference to all of us who live in the West. And I'm very happy to say that I have all of the reports on my bookshelves. I use them, I refer to them, and I think at um, Russ Clark's great embarrassment, I stole one the minute I saw it. And uh, Russ, thank you so much for your leadership and for the students who have been part of this year's report. This is such a beautiful acknowledgement, and please know how much it means to me as a native daughter of the American West. Um, it means something to both Brooke and me. Um, and we are so moved and appreciative of this recognition. Uh, Ed and Betsy Marsden are dear friends of ours. I talked to them yesterday. They send their love. And we were all um, both appreciative and perplexed. Um, just, you know, as writers, you spend so much of your time working alone. So to be able to um, be part of community means the world to us. Both Brooke and I have had the pleasure and privilege of teaching, I'm watching the time, um, a block here at Colorado College some time ago. But what we were able to see was the vibrancy, the creativity, and the intellectual rigor that comes with this kind 
of intense emancipatory education. I think some of the most creative students I've ever had the privilege of working with, Katie Standifer uh, and Teresa Cohn, um, have come from Colorado College. I think of Steve Trimble, a colleague of mine in Utah, and Jane Sokolow. Uh, I could go on and on. Uh, Michelle Sullivan, you have a distinguished alum, and I appreciate them. The State of the Rockies conference and report card is an example of your leadership and the reach of your students. I love that research report engage. It's such a beautiful credo that all of us can take into our own passion and work. The American West is indeed home ground. What I can tell you tonight is that my ancestors came to the Salt Lake Valley as part of the handcart company who followed Brigham Young to Zion from Nauvoo, Illinois in 1847. And when Brigham Young, who was Brooks' great-great-grandfather, uh, stood at the top of emigration and looked toward the shimmering horizon of Great Salt Lake and said, this is the place, we believed him. A few decades later, my great-grandmother, Valet Lee Romney, with her husband, Park Romney, who was a patriarch in the Mormon church, left Utah with their polygamous family to practice plural marriage freely in Colonial Dublon, part of the state of Chihuahua in Mexico. It's where my grandmother Letty was born in 1911. As family folklore goes, a year and a half later, my great-grandmother Valet left a cake baking in the oven as she fled Pancho Villa and his men. She got on her horse carrying my grandmother on her lap and they rode to the U.S.-Mexican border where they were received as refugees and corralled in El Paso, Texas. The United States government that gave them a free ticket to the town of their choice and they returned back to Salt Lake City where my family remains now. Each of us can trace our personal histories within the American West and find that golden thread that binds us here. My thread is tied to my spiritual roots. I love this landscape. Our family's livelihood, livelihood has been tethered to the land ever since four generations of pipeline contractors helping to build the infrastructure of the interior west. And I'm so interested to read your report about what the infrastructure looks like now. And I can't wait to give this to my father and brothers. The Tempest Company has built water lines, gas lines, and fiber optic cable, cable in all eight states. From the 1920s to the present, the Tempest Company has been part of the big buildup after World War II in Utah, Idaho, Nevada, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. And we were taught at a very early age that nothing is as it appears. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father and brothers and uncles, and I must say um, gender equality has not found its way into the family business, have all dug deep into the strata of the West. I remember when I asked my father if I could work there, he said, absolutely not. And I went around his back and um, took a flag woman's school. And when I showed up on the job, I was immediately fired as a hazard to the job. For the men in my family, their tool of choice is the shovel. My tool of choice is a pen. Why do I write? I write to make peace with the things I cannot control. I write to create fabric in a world that often appears black and white. I write to discover. I write to uncover. I write to meet my ghosts. I write to begin a dialogue. I write to imagine things differently, 
and in imagining things differently, perhaps the world will change. I write to honor beauty. I write to correspond with my friends. I write as a daily act of improvisation. I write because it creates my composure. I write against power and for democracy. I write myself out of my nightmares and into my dreams. I write in a solitude born out of community. I write to the questions that shatter my sleep. I write to the answers that keep me complacent. I write to remember. I write to forget. I write to the music that opens my heart. I write to quell the pain. I write to migrating birds with the hubris of language. I write as a form of translation. I write with the patience of melancholy in winter. I write because it allows me to confront that which I do not know. I write as an act of faith. I write as an act of slowness. I write to record what I love in the face of loss. I write because it makes me less fearful of death. I write as an exercise in pure joy. I write as one who walks on the surface of a frozen river beginning to melt. I write out of anger and into my passion. I write from the stillness of night, anticipating, always anticipating. I write to listen. I write out of silence. I write because of the humor of our condition as human beings. I write because I believe in words. I write because I do not believe in words. I write because it is a dance with paradox. I write because you can play on the page like a child left alone in the sand. I write because it belongs to the force of the moon, high tide, low tide. I write because it is the way I take long walks. I write as a bow to wilderness. I write because I believe I can create a path in darkness. I write because as a child I spoke a different language. I write with a knife carving each word through the generosity of trees. I write as ritual. I write because I am unemployable. I write out of my inconsistencies. I write because then I do not have to speak. I write with the colors of memory. I write as a witness to what I have seen. I write as a witness to what I imagine. I write by grace and grit. I write out of indigestion. I write when I am starving. I write when I am full. I write to the dead. I write out of the body. I write to put food on the table. I write on the other side of procrastination. I write for the children we never had. I write for the love of ideas. I write for the surprise of a beautiful sentence. I write with the belief of alchemists. I write knowing I will always fail. I write knowing words always fall short. I write knowing I can be killed by my own words, stabbed by syntax, crucified by both understanding and misunderstanding. I write out of ignorance. I write by accident. I write past the embarrassment of exposure. I keep writing, and suddenly I am overcome by the sheer indulgence, the madness, the meaninglessness, the ridiculousness of this list. I trust nothing, especially myself, and slide headfirst into the familiar abyss of doubt, humiliation, and threaten to push the delete button on my way down, madly erase each line, pick up the paper, rip it to shreds, and then I realize it doesn't matter. Words are always a gamble, splinters from cut glass. I write because it is a dangerous, bloody risk, like love, to form the words, to say the words, to touch the source, to be touched, to reveal how vulnerable we are, how transient we are. I write as though I'm whispering in the ear of the one I love.
I love the West, our beautiful, broken, beloved West. 60% of America's public lands and one half of our designated wilderness is here in the West. With pressures from population development, energy development, water issues, and a fractured economy, these are complicated times within our communities as we sort out what it means to be a Westerner and can we live sustainable lives? Can we have a healthy, viable economy and still protect and preserve the landscape that we love? Each state has its hotbed issues. I love reading newspapers in the West. Arizona, my brother's working there now on oil and gas. We have the complexity of immigration and the seedbeds of anarchy with Minutemen, my uncle is one of them, armed at the border. And we have a program called Taco Diplomacy that brings the organic foods of Mexico, a cross-cultural exchange with ranchers and farmers in Arizona, a picture of food production that honors local markets, the full range. In New Mexico, I was just talking to CC alum, Teresa Cohn, who's writing about fire, the fire of creativity that has the potential of the atomic bomb created at Los Alamos, or the fire of a kiln at the Santa Clara Pueblo. Nearby, nine million years of perfection in the form of sandhill cranes migrate each year at the Bosque del Apache. In Colorado, as you know better than anyone, urban sprawl along the front range, displacing prairie dogs, and then witness a town council in the mountain town of Telluride that has protected them, believing that they have something to teach us about community. Red snow on the Rockies, red dust in the desert, red trees in the mountains, climate change. The evidence is here. I think about Wyoming, how the town of Pavilion no longer can drink its own water. In August of 2010, the EPA said, that's it. You cannot drink the water, you cannot bathe with it, wash with it, garden with it. And now Ancana, who services the 140 oil wells, are busing in their water every single week. Imagine that. I can't wait to read your case study in this year's report card on the Powder River Basin. I've seen with my own eyes what that split estate looks like. So have you in the state of Colorado. On the other hand, I look at the town of Jackson, who's leading the state in energy efficiency, a progressive mayor who's working to reduce carbon emissions. And I think about the arts, a centerpiece to all topics surrounding identity. There's Idaho, right now receiving mega loads from South Korea in the port of Lewiston, which are then trucked over the state up through Montana's Blackfoot Valley, home to the fly fishing waters, threatened by the 23 foot wide halls of a 22 foot road to Alberta as part of the ongoing tar sands operation. Mention the word wolves in Montana, and you've got a governor who literally just gave the go-ahead last month to shoot any wolf on sight as an act of defiance over their frustration of the federal government in their delisting process. This alongside a literary history unprecedented in the West, from Norman McLean to Rick Bass. I think about Nevada. My father was just telling me that what the real numbers of unemployment are are 23% in Las Vegas, even though they report 14%. They keep the real figures hidden so as not to discourage tourism. 
And then you look at the cowboy poetry gathering in Elko, giving voice to not only the mythic, but magic. And in Utah, the great wilderness debate continues with 9.2 million acres at stake. Meanwhile, a 28-year-old student in economics from the University of Utah named Tim DeChristopher has just been charged on two felony accounts for disrupting a BLM oil and gas auction that was already deemed illegal by Secretary of Interior Salazar for disrupting a BLM oil and gas auction um, where the BLM violated the very laws that they are asked to uphold, laws such as NEPA and the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. De Christopher now could face up to 10 years in prison. His sentencing is scheduled for June 23rd. And then talking to Russ today, how in Indian country there is a blackout of wideband internet. And yet I think about on the Wind River Reservation, the restoration of free-roaming bison and the resurgence of native languages. When Gertrude Stein speaks about the vitality of the struggle, we are experiencing it right here, right now, as Westerners. The eyes of the future are looking back at us, and they are praying for us to see beyond our own time. They are kneeling with hands clasped that we might act with restraint, that we might leave room for the life that is destined to come. To protect what is wild is to protect what is gentle. Perhaps the wildness we fear is the pause between our own heartbeats, that silent space that says we live only by grace. Wildness lives by this same grace. Wild mercy is in our hands. Recently, I came home from a long bout of traveling and teaching. Um, I was numb. I could hardly see what was in front of me. You've had that feeling before where you just think, what am I connected to? And all I wanted to do, Brooke picked me up in Salt Lake City, all I wanted to do was just go home and go to bed, shut the door, not talk to anybody, and just retreat, which I'm really good at. And Brooke said, sorry, we're going into the book cliffs. And I said, honestly, Brooke, I just, I don't have it. Please just take me home. And I would not be lying if I said we had quite a little scrimmage in the truck. Um, Brooke won with our dog, Rio. And as field coordinator for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, he said he had work to do. Within half an hour, I f could breathe. Within an hour, my shoes were off. And by the end of the day, I was lying on my back in a dry wash. I was in heaven. And I want to read to you um, a series of 11 short poems called Ode to Sanity. One, here is the stillness of a sanity restored. A slit of light torn in the cliff is just enough to remind me there is no such thing as despair except in the world we create. Remote is the human world, not wilderness. Two, the smallest stream is feeding this canyon. It could be an aerial view of a mighty river, or it could be an interior view of my own open vein. What is blood but the life force that cannot be pushed back? Three, for the first time in a long time, I wear fear like a cloak of feathers, not the fear of terror, but the terror of exhilaration. A mountain lion is near, waiting, watching, 
It makes me wonder what she feels before she strikes. Four, dusk in the desert, fall before winter. The percussive roo of crickets creates a longing to stay. This is a house of guests who leave their tracks in the sand. Our presence unknowingly is as ephemeral as smoke. Five, clouds as thoughts, thoughts as storms. A trickle of water is eroding the rock. I am nothing more than flesh and bones among stones. Disappearance is the work of wind. Six, my husband of 36 years with great tenderness says, I am proud of the great life I have given our dog, Rio. <laughs> These words, as our Basenji dances on red rock and howls, there are many ways to gauge a life, but none more noble than joy. Seven, sage, allow me to rub you between my fingers so that everything I touch after words will remember. The pungency of memory is restored with one deep breath. We pause, our imagination sneaks up on us. Eight, can it be this simple that an ode to sanity be written by hand in a wilderness unknown? Can it be that all ambitions rest in the indifference of stone? The boundaries we set are a madness of our own making. Nine, there is a brass bed half buried in sand. Its headboard is bent by time and neglect. But imagine the night when two lovers conjoined and decided in whispers, walls must fall. 10. Vermilion clouds call turquoise home. A little-known river stirs like a snake unseen, thirsty. There is pain in beauty because we are told it will end. The mesas are burning. We are burning in light. 11. Velocity is a band of pronghorn. They stop, turn, and stare. Their world is one of witness. Vision as prey is prayer enough. Would you believe me if I told you one night I slept with a skull? And when I awoke, the antelope said to me, yield. It takes so little as a Westerner to be returned to our skin. The American West is a mosaic of landscapes, cultures, interests, and dreams. I'm always interested in the stories that aren't being told. And not long ago, I met a man named Brian, a roughneck who works in the oil fields of North Dakota, Williston, North Dakota to be exact, 40 miles from Montana, 60 miles from the border of Canada. He's part of the fracking crew, mixing a biocide with water and sand to perforate the rock so the oil can move through. You know this process. He talked about the J920, which is part of the gel used in the hopper to mix the sand before they send down the missile. He lost everything during the recession, he told me. His home, his wife, his family, everything. He was living in northern Utah, Hiram. Now he works for 15, 50 an hour. He works 90 to 125 hours a week. And in the fall, he told me, he worked six and a half weeks without a day off. Two hours, he drove to the patch, 20 hours on the rig, and another two hours back with 10 hours off until the next work period. He said they made a real victory. They convinced the Slumberjay Oil Company from Texas to give them two more hours 
And he said that two hours has made all the difference. He lives in a three-bedroom apartment with four men. And Slumberjay is putting pressure to place nine nine men in that three-bedroom apartment. It's better than a man camp, he says. I can't complain. The man camp is where they have two men to a trucking container with one toilet between them. And then they stack these containers on top of each other. It's like a military compound. I want none of it. He then talked about the beauty of the landscape, the deer, the pronghorn, the rabbits that pass by, the camaraderie of the men, the money they are making, even though the cost of living is high. $5 for a gallon of milk, 2200s for a single wide for rent. There's injuries, there's blowouts, and the quality of life is tough, he says. But at least he has a job. And he told me that he feels as though he's part of something patriotic that every rig flies the American flag. I was very moved by his story, and I told him that my family is also in the oil and gas industry, and that my brothers have worked for years and broken their backs, even their necks, on this industry, laying natural gas lines. When he asked me what I did, I told him I was a writer. And when he asked me what I write about, I told him the oil and gas industry in the last five years. I told him that I had just gotten home from the Gulf of Mexico and that what I saw undid me to the point where I'm just recovering. That on the day 100, when the New York Times in the right-hand corner above the fold said that the oil was gone, I went out with a barefoot pilot and we flew to ground zero where the Macondo well blew up. And what I can tell you is when they said 80% of the oil was gone, for as far as I could see, for as wide as I could see, for as long as I could stand it, nothing but oil. And then he told me more. He told me about the toxicity of the chemicals, that they have to wear masks, that they have to wear protective clothing, because if one drop of that dust touches their skin, it will eat through to the bone. He told me about the biocide, that nobody really knows what the chemicals are. And he said to me, If you're a writer worth your salt, you'll investigate. He told me he just wants to live a good life. I told him we have much in common. And then I asked the question, how do we find beauty in this broken world? How do we take that which is broken and create something whole? And how do we find that language as Westerners that brings us together rather than what pulls us apart? In the 10 minutes I have left, I just want to read you one section from my latest book called Finding Beauty in a Broken World. What I can tell you is this, that after September 11th, I think all of us had a reevaluation of who we are in the world and what democracy looks like. I happened to be at the nation's capital in the Corcoran Gallery, which is right across from the White House, when the Twin Towers were struck. I was with a group of photographers. Maybe I shared this with you last time I was here, um, but it's germane to this story. I was with a group of photographers and writers, and we were exploring a sense of place. The guard came in, said the Twin Towers have been struck, the Pentagon's been hit, run. And we continued talking to one another. There was nothing in our imagination that could hold what he had just said. About four minutes past, he came running in and he said, what didn't you hear? Run. 
We went onto the street. It was gridlock. We saw people running across the White House lawn. I remember the next thing we were in this taxi, um, eight of us, and the cab driver turned around and said, and just where would you like to go? (laughs) A lesson in presence. And it was there in those five days when we couldn't fly home to the West that I saw how quickly our rhetoric changed, that it was Senator Murkowski who said, it's not if we're going to drill in the Arctic, but when. And I remember making a decision in that moment as a writer that I would speak out, that there are many forms of terrorism, and environmental degradation is one of those. And I could hardly wait to get back. And the first place we went was to the Northern Rockies, to the Tetons, because I thought in a time of such uncertainty, we could put our hand on granite. A year went by, I spoke out, we were audited. Um, But the thing that was the most terrifying to me is that my rhetoric had become as brittle as those I was opposing. I had lost my sense of poetry. We were in Maine, it was high tide, and I remember saying prayers. And I said to those waters, give me one wild word, and I promise I will follow. And the word that was rolled back to me was mosaic. I remember being disappointed, thinking, great, I now have a life relegated to breaking um, my mother's dishes and making bad picture frames. But that was my ignorance. I didn't realize that mosaic is not just a craft, but an art form, even the form of assemblage. I'd like to read to you the first section of this book that talks about mosaic. Her name is Luciana. She is my teacher. Her work is unsigned, anonymous, like the mosaicists before her, who created the ancient mosaics that adorned the sacred interiors of this quiet town. She conducts this workshop in the traditional manner outlined centuries ago. Did I mention that I'm in the town of Ravenna, Italy? The tools required, she tells us, a hammer and a hardy. The hardy is similar to a chisel and is embedded in a tree stump for stability. A piece of marble, glass, or stone desiring to be cut is held between the forefinger and thumb of the left hand, placed perpendicular on the hardy. The hammer that bears two cutting edges gracefully curved is raised in the right hand. With quick blow, a tessera is born, the essential cube in the creation of a mosaic. Her name is Luciana. She is a mosaicist in the town of Ravenna. She has no belief in invention or innovation. It has all been done before, she says. There are rules. One, the play of light is the first rule of mosaic. The surface of mosaics is irregular, even angled, to increase the dance of light on the tessera. Three, tessera are irregular, rough, individualized, unique. Four, if you are creating a horizontal line, place tessera vertically. Five, if you are creating a vertical line, place tessera horizontally. Six, the line in mosaic is supreme. Seven, the background is very important in emphasizing the mosaic pattern. Eight, there is perfection in imperfection. Nine, many colors are used to create one color from afar. Ten, the distance from which the mosaic is viewed is important to the design. Eleven, 
the play of light is the first and last rule of Mosaic. Luciana will tell you that once you learn the rules of ancient mosaics, only then can you break them. She places a gold piece of glass between her finger and thumb on the hardy and holds the hammer at the base of its wooden handle. Ting! She strikes the gold smalty into the exact shape she desires. You can learn this technique in 15 minutes, she says. It will take you a lifetime to master it. A mosaic is a conversation between what is broken. His name is Marco De Luca. He is a mosaicist in the town of Ravenna. Unlike the artist before him who created ancient mosaics that embellished the sacred interiors of this quiet town, his work adorns galleries, not ceilings. De Luca builds geological landscapes with cubes. Each tessera that he cuts with his hammer and hardy becomes a tiny block of earth, a drop of water, or a shimmering note in the composition of light. You stand before his mosaic constructions and witness a stratigraphy of stones. Moon wake over wave blue, rose fish deep sand seen near, cube swim gold next rock face, leaf fell fall, land dirt held. Tessera fall like words. His name is Marco De Luca, and he can bend stone with his eyes. We meet by chance. He invites me to his studio. He leans against the white stucco wall. He is tall. He is dark. His intensity is unnerving. He walks over to a turnstile loaded with stones where balls, bowls of smalty are also found. He brings a wooden box to me. Hold out your hands. He places a dozen class cubes into my open palms. He puts the box down and then picks up a pitcher and pours water over the glass squares in my cupped hands. The colors begin to speak, dazzling rich hues, red, maroon, purple, brown, black, gold. These are ancient tessera from the Church of San Vitale, he says, that are over 1,500 years old. They fell from the ceiling during the war, he tells me, and were in the safekeeping of an old restorer who gathered them up and kept them in this box. Before he died, he gave them to me. De Luca puts some in his own hands and pours water over them as well. He holds them up to my ear. Listen, he says. Who will give up this world? The catalog of forms is endless. No one sees everything. I am looking for a way to vocalize, perform, act out, address the commonly felt crisis of our time. These are spiritual exercises. I went back for the disembodied arms with the hands clasped in prayer, but they were gone. Fragmentation and breaking up is indeed the essence of the 20th century. We are now living in the 21st century. We have no compass to orient ourselves. Memory is redundant. Didn't we plant the seeds? Weren't we necessary to the earth? There is an old saying that when you change your life, you also change your ideas. I came to this workshop in Ravenna because of a word, mosaic, unaware of the landscape I was entering. I came to the mosaic workshop in Ravenna to learn a new language with my hands. People talk about medium, what is your medium, my medium as a writer has been dirt, clay, sand, what I could touch, hold, stand on, and stand for. Earth, 
my medium has been earth, earth in correspondence with my mind. Here in the village of Ravenna, a continent away from where I live, I am indeed learning a new language, but it is very different from the one I imagined. I now look to my hands. Mosaic is a way to organize your life. Luciana gives us her last instructions. Making mosaics is a way of thinking about the world. Luciana's final words, mosaics are created out of community. Thank you for bringing me into this community. <laughs>